Well, good to see you this morning. I uh, missed you last week. Am I on there? Everyone can hear me. I just can't hear myself. That's normal. Um, <laughs> good to be here with you. Uh, missed you last week. Uh, I heard you guys had a wonderful service with Teen Challenge and Pastor Brian preaching. You guys had a great time. Memorial Day is uh, the one weekend a year. Wendy and I usually try and get away. Uh, just the two of us, I encourage those of you who are married to try and find some time during the year if you can make that happen, to make that work. It is uh, a blessing to our marriage. It's one of the greatest blessings. I know sometimes parents have a hard time doing that, but I'll tell you it's one of the greatest blessings you can give your kids if you will find time, a way to invest in your marriage, uh, even apart from the children. Um, So we try and do that at least once a year and I encourage those of you who are married to try that as well. It was also a chance to celebrate uh, kind of a milestone in my life. Turned 40 this past week. And, um, yeah. Made it. Yep. Um, Someone, uh, a friend of mine, a pastor friend of mine said he's sending me a book called Halftime. I said, can you send me one called The Third Time? Um, you know, I think maybe I'll be like Moses and I'll be like this, this first 40. But then I thought about it and I thought, you know, the last 80 were pretty tough for Moses. So um, maybe not. Um, but, uh, but it is good to be back with you this morning. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open to 1 Samuel chapter 17, please. 1 Samuel chapter 17. We're continuing in our unexpected series. As you're turning there, let me start. You know, sometimes a movie that becomes a classic will produce lines that become so famous that many people don't even know where they come from. You've probably said the line, but you don't even realize maybe where it originated. This is definitely the case for uh, one of the movies that's Wendy and I's, one of our favorite movies, perhaps the favorite movie of ours, and it produced such lines as this, play it again, Sam, which actually, if you've seen the movie, the line is not play it again, Sam, it's just play it, Sam, but somehow it, uh, play it again, Sam, came about, and the other one is, one of the other lines it produced is, here's looking at you, kid. Some of you may not know where that came from, but what movie did those come from? Casablanca. We had a lot of Humphrey Bogart fans here. Uh, Casablanca. You know, it happens in literature too. Some of the famous sayings that we might have in our language, you may not realize, a lot of them come from Shakespeare's plays. Uh, Lines like, uh, as luck would have it, comes from the Merry Wives of Windsor. Dead as a doornail comes from Henry VI. Eaten out of house and home comes from Henry IV. Forever and a day comes from As You Like It. For goodness sake, it's not from the Christmas song. Comes from Henry VIII. Love is blind comes from the merchants of Venice and Wild Goose Chase. Anyone know where that one comes from? Romeo and Juliet. Some of these famous sayings, we don't even realize where they come from, but we use them all the time. When we come to 1 Samuel chapter 17, we come to a story so famous that I think many people use the terminology and don't even realize where the story comes from. The term David and Goliath is often used in our culture, and I think there are many people who may not even realize that the story is in the Bible. You can find it in headlines in our newspaper. Uh, For example, this one, World Series, Giants vs. Royals, the Milwaukee, Wisconsin Journal Sentinel, I know a lot of you read that paper, uh, said World Series, a David vs. Goliath story. Other headlines in uh, business and in politics, the Bellingham Herald, August 3rd, 2014, trademark, trademark battle snares Bellingham Company, in David versus Goliath fight, or even in politics, Donovan challenges Kennedy and David and Goliath fight for 63rd Senate seat. And so this terminology is sometimes out there, but I think a lot of people don't even realize that David and Goliath is a story, an account that happened in history that's recorded 
in the Bible. I know this is true because when I googled headlines with David and Goliath, I also found searches that said, who is David and Goliath, and where do I find David and Goliath, and where does this story come from? So people will use the terminology or hear the terminology without having any idea that it's actually connected to the Bible. Perhaps that's you today. Perhaps you didn't grow up in the church. Perhaps you didn't grow up, um, you know, reading the Bible or hearing the Bible preached, and you didn't even know that there's a story in the Bible about a man named David and a man named Goliath. The challenge of such a great story and familiar story, especially for a preacher, is that it often becomes so famous that everyone knows how it's going to end. David and Goliath is this incredible story, but you all already know how it ends. This is certainly true. I mean, if David does not defeat Goliath, it's not a story worth remembering because history is full of stories of Goliath's beating David's. So with such a familiar story, people often try to put a different spin on it in order to gain a fresh hearing. This is certainly true of an author recently named Malcolm Gladwell. Some of you might have heard of Malcolm Gladwell, uh, best-selling author, uh, written books uh, like Outliers and The Tipping Point. He also wrote a book, uh, 2013, it was a bestseller called David and Goliath, Underdogs, Misfits, and the Art of Battling Giants. We'll get to Malcolm's unique take in a minute, but first let's look at the story in 1 Samuel 17. Let me look at it, perhaps if you've heard it again and again, let me remind you of it. If you've never heard it before, it's quite a story. 1 Samuel chapter 17, let me set the scene for you. The scene is a battle between the army of Israel led by their king Saul and against a group called the Philistines. The Philistines are coming in from the sea and are seeking to take over the land where the Israelites were living. The battle lines are drawn on either side of a valley called Elah. And here's the scene of the fight. There's a valley there in the middle, and there, of course, on the side of a valley are two high points or ridges. On each one of the high points of the valley is encamped an army, the army of Israel on one side, and the army of the Philistines on the other. But here's the problem. They've hit a stalemate because here's what they both realize. The first one to go down into the valley loses. Because once you give up the high ground and you start going down into the valley in order to come up and attack the other one, you are vulnerable to the other army that has the high ground and you're going to lose. So they're stuck there in a stalemate staring at each other or whatever they're doing. So what happens is they come up with, someone comes up with this plan to engage in something called single combat. This is something that was engaged in in, the, uh, in that time and in the world. Single combat. Single combat meant this. You send out your best warrior. We'll send out our best warrior. And whoever wins, will take that as the side winning the battle. I don't know how often they actually made good on their end of the bargain, but it was something that happened at this time. And so they said, instead of us both going to the valley or one of us going to the valley and everybody will slaughter each other, instead of that, only one person needs to die. And whoever wins this battle of single combat, that side will be the winner and the other side will have to serve uh, the nation that won that battle. So they engage in single combat. Enter Goliath. Goliath enters. He is the warrior of the Philistines. He is a giant. He is gigantic. I dare even say he's taller than David Weir. Um, David Weir might be short compared to Goliath. So think taller. And he's got this armor that covers just about every part of his body. And he's got weapons. He's got a sword. He's got a javelin. He's got a guy in front of him that he doesn't even carry his own shield because it's so big. He's got a guy in front of him that carries his shield for him that's like the size of a picnic table. So, so picture this guy carrying a picnic table before him. And then Goliath stands behind it with all of his armor all clad, and he comes out, and he is bigger than anyone the Israelites have on their side by far. And he comes out every day, twice a day, and he taunts them. 
He taunts them with this. Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, this day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. And so he comes out twice a day, every day for 40 days, morning, afternoon, and shouts this taunt at the nation of Israel. And they cower. They're afraid. No one steps up. Not even Saul, who was their chosen king. Step, no one steps up. That's Goliath. Now enter David. David, a shepherd boy, not a warrior, not a soldier, wasn't trained but he was sent to the battle lines by his father, Jesse, to deliver lunch, basically to bring food. He's a pizza delivery guy. His, 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 in fact, they send him with cheese. He brings cheese, and he brings food. They said. And he says, you know, take this to your brothers who are fighting in the battle. Bring them this food. Bring them to the front lines, and let me know what's going on. And so David comes. Enter David. He's a shepherd boy. He keeps sheep. Nothing remarkable, really, about him not a trained soldier, and he comes to deliver this food to his brothers. It says, David left the things with the keeper of supplies, so he leaves the food with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines and greeted his brothers. As he was talking with them, Goliath the Philistine, champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance. Here's the key of the whole passage. And David heard it. David heard it. In fact, in Hebrew, that's only two words, not three. It's simply David heard. And perhaps rarely are there two more significant words. Most people would not even notice, of course, that David heard. But the fact that David heard changes history for all of Israel, changes history for much of, you could say, the world because David heard what Goliath had said. When the Israelites saw the man, they ran from him in great fear, but not David. David heard what he said, and he was not only upset. He was offended, not for him, but for God. Here's this Philistine saying, you know what? He's basically saying, you're God, no match for me. Send out a warrior, anyone, I'll defeat him. He's, He's taunting and mocking their God. But David says, why won't anyone go out and fight this guy? And eventually Saul hears about this young David and calls him. He says, look, if there's somebody that wants to fight Goliath, well, bring him to me and I'll talk to him. And he comes to Saul and David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, you're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a boy. And he has been a fighting man from his youth so Saul sees what everyone else sees. What Pastor Brian talked about last week, a matter of perspective. Saul's perspective is a very human perspective. He sees, he sees a giant and he sees a little a boy, David, who's not a soldier. You can't fight him. But Saul is not seeing from God's perspective. David then responds to Saul. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. Think about that for a second. Lion or a bear. Rescue. How many of you would have just been like, you know what? I got others. Keep the sheep. (laughs) Struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he's defiled. He's defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. David says in confidence, look, God did it before. God delivered me from the lion and this guy's nothing. And he's got a whole different perspective than the rest of them, right? He's looking at it and saying, look, I I fought a lion and a bear. 
You know, he, it grabbed him by the hair, ripped the sheep out of his mouth. This guy is nothing. This guy is not even going to pose a problem against the God that I serve. So Saul basically tells him, look, you want to go out, you can go out. Fine, no one else is going, but put on my armor. Fight like everyone else fights. David tries it on. It doesn't fit. It's not going to work. He's not used to fighting in that armor. He says, I can't do this. Can't wear your armor. See, Saul wants him to fight like all the other soldiers fight, but that's not David's battle. That's not David's style. That's not how David wins. So David puts the armor away, says, no, thank you, and then he takes up his staff. He takes up his sling. He grabs five stones and, of course, knows that the presence of the Lord is with him. David goes out into the valley. The Philistine Goliath once again taunts him, but David responds. He's not cowering like the rest of the Israelites. David said to the Philistines, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day the Lord will hand you over to me and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. Today I will give you, I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or by spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. I mean, I just picture, this is like, this speech, I picture like William Wallace, like, you know, in, in Braveheart, going before his troops, you know, just shouting this out. Goliath is shouting, and David shouts right back, I'm going to feed your carcasses to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. I mean, there's this little boy, and he's shouting out, this young man shouting out these threats to Goliath the giant, and it must have looked pretty foolish from a lot of people's perspective. But David knew better. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran uh, quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down to the ground. He later takes the sword from Goliath, cuts off Goliath's head just like he said he would, and thus, the first headline is ever written, David defeats Goliath. And that's the story, and it's an incredible story. It's a story that many people come to and find hope in the midst of difficult circumstances. Anyone who hears this story knows it's the ultimate underdog story. This is a boy versus a trained warrior. The Bible takes great pains to describe the details of Goliath's armor, so you know how far he, David's outmatched. He all, the Bible also takes details to remind us David had no sword. says it twice. David did not have a sword to show that he was outmatched. The stage is being set for the impossible task. It's a fool's errand, and no one would give David a chance. So I said Malcolm Gladwell takes a unique perspective on this in his book, and he does. He looks at how David won and concludes that it's not nearly as improbable as the odds at first appear. He looks at it and says, it's not nearly as improbable that David wins as the odds at first appear. David is certainly an underdog, but that doesn't mean he doesn't have any advantages over Goliath. David has a superior weapon, Gladwell says. So yeah, Goliath had a huge sword, he had a javelin, he had a spear, but David had what would have been equivalent to a, a sniper rifle in his day. The sling was an extremely deadly weapon and deadly from a distance. And someone who could wield a sling well could throw a stone with remarkable accuracy. And so even though some people look at it and say, well, David's at a great disadvantage, Gladwell says, but he had superior weapon technology of the time. And so he had some advantages that Goliath may not have had. He had the same advantages similar to maybe the American Revolutionary troops when they were fighting, uh, in, when they were fighting the British who would line up in their formation 
And the American troops, the colonists, would say, well, forget this. Why are we going to line up and shoot each other? We're just gonna, we'll just shoot you from the trees. And David was like, you know, why am I going to come and fight you with a sword? You're huge. I'll just, I'll just sling my stone from here. And so he had some superior technology, Gladwell says, and that was an advantage. He was also more mobile. Didn't have, he didn't have the uh, restrictions that Goliath had with his armor because of his armor. And, of course, he also, most importantly, had the Spirit of God on his side. In addition, Gladwell, from the description of Goliath, concludes that he likely suffers from a disease that perhaps impacts his vision and ability to move, a, a disease that often uh, creates uh, growth hormones that would create a giant, but often those same things that would produce those growth hormones would produce things like double vision, harder ability to move, and things like that, and maybe Goliath suffered from those things. I'm not sure I agree with Glabo on that, but it's a, it's a thought. Malkin comes at it and says, through many compelling stories, he brings out principles for success when a person is operating in a position of inferiority. Malcolm comes at it looking not for a sermon on a theological redemptive truth, but for strategies that could be applied to any sector of life. In order to achieve success, and in particular success when operating from a position of perceived weakness. It's a good book. I recommend it to you. Gladwell is a good writer. There's even some things in there that I took from that could help from leading a church. But in the end... It provides some helpful points for success, but it's not looking for the theological redemptive truth that I think is found in the David and Goliath story. But the truth is many Christians come to this story with the same posture as Gladwell, not looking necessarily for eternal redemptive theological truths, but for pithy life principles. We come to this story looking for ways to defeat the giants in our lives. We want to gain some principles to be successful in our lives, certainly in what we would consider our spiritual life. In life, we find ourselves in situations where we seem to be outmatched, outgunned, the underdog in the fight, the one who no one's giving a chance to, seems like overwhelming odds, and so we come to David looking for help. We come to this story looking for ways to defeat the figurative giants in our lives. We often see giants as any obstacle that's hard to overcome. So we come to David and say, how do we overcome these giants? And there's no doubt some good principles in this story. However, when we do this, when we make this David and Goliath story about five smooth stones for defeating giants or three principles for gaining victory, we miss the real reason that the account is given to us by God. We miss the real battle that's taking place, and we miss the larger story that God wants to tell us. I want to get to that real story, real battle, in just a moment. And I'll get to that in just a moment. But just before I do, there are some good principles that we can take out of David and Goliath. And since everyone else gets to preach those principles, let me give you three quick ones here for you. Let me give you three quick principles for all of Christian life that I think we can draw from David and Goliath. You know, David, by some definitions, might be considered the luckiest man alive. Someone would say it's just a lucky shot if they didn't have a godly perspective. It was a once-in-a-lifetime shot. Well, if we look at luck and define it the way Seneca, a philosopher in Jesus' time that lived the same time as Jesus said, maybe it was. Because Seneca defined luck as this, the place where preparation meets opportunity. If that is true, then David was the luckiest man to ever live, and we have much to learn from him. Much of the story of David and Goliath is about being prepared for a God-given opportunity. That's what David was. He was completely prepared for a God-given opportunity. And I think if we can draw anything from the story, that's what we draw. So let me give you three quick principles from David. First one is this. Most of your preparation for God's opportunities will take place in obscurity. Most of your preparation for God's opportunities will take place in obscurity. David was not a soldier in Saul's army. He was not a famous general. Nobody knew his name. 
His preparation for the moment took place not in public, but in private. He was a shepherd. Shepherds were often out alone, just them and the sheep, leading from pasture to pasture, protecting them, leading them to places to eat. But it was a place of obscurity. Maybe it was knocking leaves off trees. Maybe it was setting up pieces of broken pottery. But in that place, David learned to sling stones. Not sure how or why or what he used them for, but in that place of obscurity where only God saw him, he became an excellent marksman. He was prepared for an opportunity that God might bring. When the bear and the lion came to attack the sheep, there was no army to call. There was no 911 to dial. It was up to David to protect those sheep from harm. But no one saw. No one noticed. No one went, wow, did you just take down that lion? Wow, did you kill that bear? No one noticed. It's often the places of obscurity that God prepares us for his opportunities. Much of the preparation for the person of God will use will be done in a place where no one else sees. Moses was hanging out in the desert for 40 years when God called him. Joseph was in prison. Jesus was taken to the wilderness before he was started his time of ministry. Paul spent 12 years preparing for his church planting, and we don't even know what happened during those 12 years. Most of the preparation that you will receive for a God-given opportunity will take place in a place where nobody else sees where nobody else notices. Sometimes we want to do great things for God. We can get frustrated with our time in the wilderness. What we often don't realize is that the time in the wilderness or the desert is an essential component for doing great things for God. I don't know how many times David might have thought to himself, I'm just a shepherd. What am I doing out here? I'm not making any difference. Just these few sheep, day after day, these same sheep, day after day. What difference am I making? Sling some stones, write some prayers. No one will probably read them. No one will probably know my name. What difference am I making? And yet it was the place of obscurity, the place where no one else saw, the place where no one else was there, that God was using to prepare him for a God-given opportunity happens that way. You need those places of obscurity. You need the foundation that no one sees to build the building that everyone will see. It's been said time and time again that diamonds are created in darkness. The place where no one sees, that's where your preparation is done. I remember listening to Pastor Chuck Swindoll a few years ago. He was talking to a group of young pastors And he said, one of my greatest fears for you as young pastors is that you will experience success far too early because you won't have the time in obscurity. You won't have the time to develop the foundation that's needed. You're being prepared for God's opportunity right where you are today and tomorrow wherever you find yourself. Tomorrow might feel like just another Monday. I don't know where, you're, where you are in life. Maybe you're a mom with young kids. Maybe it just feels like another battle of trying to potty train your toddler. What you don't realize, mom, is when you are chasing that kid around with a mop and a bucket, doling out M&Ms for trying, wondering if you should just put a diaper back on little Johnny, Frustrated by your friend's Facebook post, their kid learned in just one day. (laughs) In that place, what you don't realize is God is at work. It's in the place of obscurity so that later when an opportunity comes, you'll be ready. That God, the Holy Spirit, is teaching you perseverance and patience, creativity and love, contentment and trust in him. So that later, when an opportunity comes along to do something difficult, you can say, this is a piece of cake between training my pot toddler how to be potty trained. Or maybe you're a mom who's working and raising kids on your own. You'd love some help, but help left out the door a long time ago. Every week seems like a fresh battle of how to get the kids every place they need to be, do the stuff around the house, grocery shop, pay the bills, keep your boss and coworkers happy at work. 
This isn't the way you pictured it in your mind when you were younger, but here you are. And in that place of balancing responsibilities, organizing, finish, finding time to pray and seek God, in that place of obscurity that no one else sees, I think God is preparing you for opportunities that he will have for you in the future. Maybe you're a man who goes to work tomorrow. You wake up and you go to the same place of work you've gone for many years. You know exactly how the schedule is going to go. You know what's going to happen. You know when it's going to happen. Probably nothing's going to change. Nothing has changed in a long time. But God is changing you. God is working in your life. He's working an aspect of faithfulness in you. He's bringing out aspects of your character that he will use later for opportunities that come your way. David was just out taking care of sheep. Out in obscurity. Nobody was watching. Nobody's paying attention. And yet God was preparing him to fight a giant. Secondly is this. Preparation takes place in obscurity. Secondly is this. God's past deliverances in your life are grounds for your present faith in him. God's past deliverances in your life are grounds for your present faith in him. David was able to look back and say, though no one else was there with me in the wilderness, God was with me. There might not have been any other people to call, to call out to, but I called out to God, and God heard and delivered me from my desperate situation. Let me tell you, your current answered prayer will be the ground you stand on in the future to trust the Lord. If, you had not seen, if he had not seen God deliver him from the lion and the bear, he might not have had the faith to trust God to deliver him from Goliath. Your grounds for trusting God today is the prayer that God answered yesterday. Your trusting God through today's cancer is his provision during yesterday's common cold. The foundation you stand on through today's joblessness is built upon the provision of yesterday's daily bread. It's God's provision in the past that we look to and we can say, if he did it then, he'll do it now. If God provided for me then, I have no reason to believe he won't come through right now. And David could look back and say, he delivered me from the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine is nothing. It's the times in the past that he could look back to. Uh, I was at a, uh, listening to a, someone speak last week. Her name was uh, Sarah Malcolm. She's a Chi Alpha campus missionary on the campus of Yale University in Connecticut. And she was speaking about this point of how David had been prepared and he was leaning on his past preparation to see God's deliverance in the present. And so she took Psalm 23, which David wrote, is attributed to David, and she did something I thought was very creative and very helpful with it. She said, let's read it in the past tense. She called it Psalm 23 in retrospect. And I asked her if I could share it this morning, and she said that it would be fine. And this is what she said. It just gives it a little different uh, spin to think about it, but it helps us remind us that what God did in the past is what helps us in the present. She, wrote, she translates it this way. The Lord has been my shepherd. I have had all I ever needed. He has made me lie down in green pastures. He faithfully led me beside still waters. He restored my soul again and again. He has led me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I have walked through some of the darkest valleys of life, I did not have to fear evil because he was always with me. His rod and his staff, they comforted me. He prepared a table for me in the presence of my enemies. He anointed my head with oil. My cup has overflowed with his blessings. The shepherd's goodness and mercy have been with me all the days of my life. And now I anxiously wait to dwell in his house forever. And you think about that. I mean, David wrote that psalm, and I know we read it, and it's written in the present tense. But at times, I think David had to look back and say, look what God had done in the past. Just as he did with Saul, the lion, the bear. If he did that, 
He can do this. And there are times in your life where you will have to look back and you will have to say, remember that time? That time I got laid off, that time that he took me through that test in school, that time that he helped me after that broken relationship, that time that he helped me when I thought I was never going to get over that hurt in my life, that time when he walked me through that sickness, that time when he walked me through that loss, and if he took me through then, he can take me through this. And you also, it's important, also, this is why it's important to know the stories of the saints in the past, because if he took them through it, he's not going to leave you. If he took them through it and was faithful with them, even unto death, some of them, you can know that he's going to be with you. It's not that it won't be difficult, but it's that he'll be there. And that's why it's important for us to share these stories with one another of what God has done. It's why it's important for you who are parents or grandparents or even if you don't have children, but you have the opportunity to influence the next generation in this church. You sit down in a Sunday school class. Don't just share that story out of Scripture. Of course do that. But you share about that time. I prayed for this and God answered my prayer and pass on that faith to the next generation. And you sit in front of those kids and you say, if you've got any, let's pray. Let me pray for you because I believe God is going to answer prayer. And it's that past deliverance that is grounds for your present faith. Third and finally, it's preparation and obscurity. It's God's past deliverances in your life. Third and finally, deliverance comes through our action and God's acting. David's words to Saul bring out the truth that there is a working in the part of David, but ultimate deliverance comes from the Lord. It's interesting. Did you catch it? David says, I struck the lion. I struck the bear. I killed them. But then he says, the same God who delivered me from the lion and the bear will deliver me from this Philistine. There's a combination of working together. It's my action and God's acting. And it's always both. And there are times when we want to just sit there and say, well, if God wants it, God's going to do it. But we have to act. We have to move. You've got to get your feet moving. David would strike the lion and the bear. Or, or I'm sorry, Saul might ask David, well, did you strike the lion and the bear or did God deliver you? And David would surely say, yes, the answer is both. It's not your actions alone that will bring about deliverance of God in your life, but God will require you to put forth effort and act. There is a great opportunity to slay a giant. God still required David to throw the stone. I remember Pastor Crosby preaching on this passage years back, and he's preaching about this passage, and he would say, you know, that even if David fired that stone in the exact opposite direction, Pastor Crosby said he believed that all the angels in heaven would get behind that stone and direct it right towards Goliath's head and it would land in that spot. And maybe that was so, but God still required David to sling that stone. And in your life, God requires you to work and to act and to move, but ultimately the deliverance will come from God. Any success you achieve in your life as a result of you stepping out in your preparation but ultimately about God at work on your behalf. So these are things that God uses in the life of all Christians. Preparation and obscurity, deliverance of past. In the past gives you foundation in your present, acting, your acting, and God's action together. These are great principles we can pull from the David and Goliath story. All Christians should know them. They should be a part of your life. And a lot of sermons on David and Goliath would end right there. And I think they would be pretty good sermons. But if you walk away and only have those three points, you will have missed the real reason the stories in the book of 1 Samuel. And the real reason I believe the Lord has preserved this account for us in the Bible. The real battle we miss, the real battle that took place on that day is not between a Philistine giant and David. Nor is the real battle between Israel and and the Philistines. The real reason this account is given to us is to bring David onto the scene in a bigger way. The real battle is between the king that the people wanted that no longer desires to seek after God and the king that God has chosen to lead his people 
in this shepherd boy, David. The trust in God that David shows in defeating Goliath is preparing him for the trust he will need to withstand Saul and his attacks in the future. The larger story is what God is unfolding in the lives of his people. Finally, when we pull out three pithy points of leadership or deliverance or how to be successful against overwhelming odds, we miss the larger story God is telling. And here's what I want you to make sure you get today. Here's what I think one of the greatest mistakes we make when we come to the David and Goliath story. One of the greatest mistakes we make of the story is the place we put ourselves in the story. Because as I've been talking about this story this morning, what we do, we come to the story and we immediately put ourselves in the position of David. But this was David's unique moment in history. This was David's moment that God had ordained for him in this moment. God had put him there in that place. God had set it up for him. He had done this so David would come on the scene. But we put ourselves in David's position. But here's the real thing. I think in the context of God's larger story of redemption, we are much more like the rest of the Israelite army. Our position is much less like David, much more like the army on the hill. And here's why. Because like Israel, there's an enemy that we need defeated and it's life or death at stake. Like Israel, the battle will come down to single combat. It's really God versus Satan and the souls and eternities of men and women are the prize. Like Israel, victory will come from an unexpected place. He will also come from Bethlehem, and he will also have a very obscure upbringing, being prepared out of most people's sight. He will not be a shepherd of sheep, but shepherds from Bethlehem will come celebrate his birth, and he will shepherd men. This man, Jesus, will defeat the giant, not on his own terms, but with with a great battle, but in an unexpected way by giving his life and dying on the cross for you and for me. The incredible thing is that even though he fights the battle, even though he gave his life on the cross, we get all of the benefits. Even though David beat Goliath, all of Israel won as if they had gone out and won the victory on their own. Jesus is the one who fights for us, and when we put our faith in him, we receive the benefits of salvation and deliverance as if it was actually us who had won the battle. And so I think we are much less like David and much more like the rest of the Israelites on the hill. Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, says this. He says, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. And what I want you to see in that passage, it was not you, it was not me who won the victory. The only reason we have the victory is because Christ won the victory and he lets us play on his team. He lets us be a part of his side. He lets us be a part of his army. And the only reason we have any victory over sin and over death is because Christ who went out and fought for us. And so if we walk away from this passage and we have three pithy statements about leadership and defeating giants, I think we have missed the greatest point of the story. For the Israelites, their greatest need was not for three encouraging points on how to defeat giants in their lives. That is helpful, but not ultimately what they needed. They needed someone to fight for them. They needed deliverance from their enemy. They needed a king who would go out and fight for them. And so do you. And so do I. Your greatest need today is not simply for a couple of catchy points to get you through the week. It's not for 
a couple of thoughts on defeating giants in your life. What you and I need more than anything else is victory over the sin that enslaves us. We need victory over our true enemy who is Satan and the consequences of that sin that will keep us forever away from God. We need someone who will fight for us. We need a warrior. Thanks be to God that Jesus Christ has won the victory. He has fought the battle and won. And if you will put your trust in him, you get to win as well. You get the victory. Just like the Israelites when David went out and fought for them. When you're in his camp, on his team, you get the victory that he fought and won. If you refuse to be on his team, you are left to fight on your own. But may it be known now that you have heard, and I'll tell you that that's a battle you're not equipped to fight. It's a battle you can't win without Jesus. This is the Christian faith. This is what you are offered in Christ. You are offered a victory that you didn't have to fight for. You are offered victory through Christ and the cross. You can refuse and try and fight it on your own, but you will lose. There is no payment that God will accept for the penalty that our sin incurred other than the blood of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross. But he will accept that payment. He will accept that payment on your behalf and on everyone who will put their faith and trust in Jesus. And you get the victory even though he fought the battle. This is the Christian faith. This is the gospel. This is our hope. And so if you have never done that this morning, if you are still trying to fight this battle or if you are still wondering what this Christian faith is about, then I encourage you, I implore you this morning to ask yourself this question. Are you gonna continue to try and fight in your own strength against the sin in your life and in your body, against the penalty that you're sinning? Are you gonna continue to insist that you have to win the battle? Imagine how foolish that would have looked for the Israelites to stay on the hill and say, nope, I'm not accepting it. I gotta fight my, I gotta do it myself. And say, no, David, David won. And because he won, we won. And it's the same for you. Because Jesus won, you win. You win the victory over death, that death no longer has not only the penalty nor even the sting because of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. What you win is the victory over the penalty that your sin has incurred in separation from God forever. What you win is eternity with heaven and in his presence forever. Not because you earned it, not because you fought for it, but because he won it. And if you put your trust in him, his victory is your victory. Would you pray with me? And if you are here this morning, I'm just going to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes for a moment. And I ask you to do this mostly because we just get so distracted. And if you bow your head and close your eyes, I just want you to, in that moment, to be in that place where it's just you, not the looking around, not the people around you, because we can get so distracted. Because one day, the Bible makes this clear, it will be just you and God. One day, you will stand before your creator, your maker, and in that moment... And in that moment, the only criteria for judgment will not be what you've done or what you haven't done. The criteria will be, did you put your faith and trust in my son, Jesus Christ, and his sacrifice? The only criteria will be, did you try and win the battle yourself? Or did you put your faith in Jesus and accept him winning the battle for you? And so in this moment, if you're there and you're fighting this battle on your own, but you today want to say, you know, I want to be, 
on God's side. I want to be on Jesus' side. I want to accept what he has done. I want to gain the victory, not through my own strength, but through what he has done for me. I want all that God has for me. I want that forgiveness of my sin. I want the power of the Holy Spirit to come and dwell within me to help me to live for him. I want heaven. I want him as my Lord, my Savior, and my treasure. And if that's you this morning, I encourage you right where you're at to tell that, not to me, not to the person beside you. But would you just pray right where you're at and speak those words to the Lord? He hears you. I don't know if you've ever, maybe you've never prayed before. God hears you when you pray. And so if you will call out to him and if you will right where you're at, pray and say, God, I want you in my life. God, I ask you to forgive my sins, Lord. And I, I ask, God, that Jesus would now be the Lord of my life, that he would be the one who leads and guides, that where he goes, I will follow just as David would become the king of Israel, where he goes, Jesus would be the king of your life. If that's your desire, just take this moment of sacred space to tell that to the Lord today. Father, thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, we love you. God, I thank you this morning for the victory that you have won. Father, I pray that we would live every day knowing that you've already won the victory with our trust in you, knowing that you're the one who fought the battle for us. Father, in believing, God, that you are preparing us for God-ordained opportunities in our lives, But none of those, none of those are so that we can win the battle of our salvation. You've already accomplished that. You've already accomplished that. And so, Lord, I thank you for that. I pray that you would help us to live our lives this week in light of the fact, with the joy in our hearts and the encouragement, that, Lord, no matter what we face, that you're with us, And you've already defeated the greatest enemy that could ever come against us. And where we pray this in faith in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, the Son of David, as it says in your word, the true King. We pray it in his name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand and we'll close out our service and worship this morning.